The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasta, your host. I have something a little different to share with my listeners this week. Not too long ago, I participated in a panel of around the topic of raising capital for service-based businesses. And it was promoted by Wire and Nikki Lavoy was the person who really spearheaded the discussion. Take a listen. There's a lot of interesting perspectives and nuggets to consider if you're truly thinking about going out and raising capital. We are here today to talk about one of the most prominent myths circulating around the insights industry these days. And it's especially prominent in the agency space within the market research side of things. This is the myth that only tech and SaaS-based companies are the ones who receive investment funding. So this panel of experts has been brought together to discuss why not only why that myth is not true, but how service-based companies can start to access investment funding if that is the path that you wish to pursue. So before we get started, I'm just gonna tell you a little bit about each of our speakers and then we will jump right in. So we have with us today, Sherry Fox, who is a career global insight strategist focused on healthcare. She is well-versed in strategic brand development and regulatory environments. She's recognized as an industry expert and futuristic thinker able to facilitate collaborations leading to the growth and acquisition of service companies, which is part of why we've asked her to be here today. She's also founded Future Health Strategies to leverage the intersection of data, insights, and technology. So hello, Sherry, and thank you for joining us today. We also have Seema with us, Seema Vasa, who is a multifaceted business leader in the market research and analytics space, whose broad range of expertise from P&L management, operations, business development, marketing, entrepreneurship, and investment banking. Currently, Seema focuses on advising clients on overall business strategy, evaluation of strategic options, and execution of investment banking mandates through Oberon Securities, a middle market-focused investment banking firm. Clearly, she also knows quite a bit about investment. So thank you, Seema, for being with us today. And last and certainly not least, we have Elaine Riddell with us today. Elaine is a growth activist who believes that breakthrough potential exists in every company. She unlocks potential by anticipating market changes that will influence client priorities and then building organizational confidence to deliver new value. As a CEO, she transformed mature, stagnant global insights firms into scalable market leaders that consistently outperformed the market over a 15-year period. Her playbook is the foundation for her growth advisory, serving founders and CEOs and PE firms. Today, Elaine is an MD with Oakland's De Silva & Phillips, a leading investment bank for marketing and media services. So thank you, Elaine, for joining us and welcome to the conversation. So I'm going to jump right in with the first question, which is why is there this myth that service-based companies can't get funding? Why is the myth so pervasive and where did that come from? And I'd love to kind of direct that first question to you, Seema, if you don't mind sharing with us your thoughts. Yeah, for sure. I think the myth is not real. I believe that service-based companies can get investment capital. They can you know, get funding if they so desire. The question really becomes, you know, what's the valuation of a company that's service-based versus what's the valuation of a company that might be more SaaS or tech-enabled? And there's, you know, there's mixed modes in there too. Some are service-based with some tech-enabled services and others are more tech-focused and less services. So clearly investors want to invest in good companies, right? That provide a strong value to clients. They serve their markets well, and they have financially sound. The question really becomes, what valuation do you want? 
how do you want your company to be valued? So I think if there's a concern about the tech part versus the service part, it's just really about what do you want in terms of your valuation? And I'll just add one more thing. I do think that there's so much focus on SaaS and tech-enabled companies in terms of getting a higher valuation. I believe that the service-based companies will see an advantage over time because they're delivering true value and drawing the insights and putting the data sets together to ultimately drive better business decisions for clients. So, you know, as we all see in our industry, topics go, they kind of get their day in the sun and we tend to balance out on things. And I think we'll see a little bit of balancing out on service-based businesses too, in terms of valuation. That was a long answer. (laughs) It's a great one. So thank you, Seema, for adding that. And then maybe I would love to, Elaine, kind of turn it over to you to see if you have anything to add from your perspective. Where does this idea come from that it has to be a tech or a SaaS-based company that's getting funding these days? You know, I'm going to pick up on what Seema said. I think everything has its time. And I think if we look at our industry right now, we needed a lot of what I'll call the back office and some of the DIY fully automated in order to you really get the better, faster, cheaper kinds of foundational services. I do believe, and actually this is something we talk about quite a bit, is that the next area of need in the marketplace is to layer on top of that platform more sophisticated, uh, more advanced decision-making capabilities that are also automated. However, because they're no longer basic, you're starting to get into more higher value, higher profile decision-making. You need service. You need people who understand the right data, the right analytics. The, they've seen the same you know, issue over and over again so that they can advise clients. So I think we're now moving into you know, more, there's not only the tech, but the decision models that sit on top of the tech and the service or the advisory, if you will, I'll I'll change the word service to advisory uh, that sits on top of it. So I think we're at the right time in the evolution of our industry to be having this conversation. I completely agree with that. One of my favorite adages is the data can't tell you why. So even with the advent of big data and and artificial intelligence being used more and more in the insights industry, you still need the people to deliver the insights to your point, Elaine. You know, you can't rely on the data to tell you why something is true. You you must ask somebody and you need to understand from a person, you know, what that is. So I think I think that's why, you know, service businesses shouldn't minimize themselves or marginalize themselves because they're more needed than ever, especially to interpret what the data is telling us and artificial intelligence is telling us. And just one more I think important word, it's not an or going forward, it's an and. And I think that's an important thing for us all to be thinking about. Agreed. That's actually a great point, Elaine. And I would love to kind of, you know, bounce that back to you a little bit. I'm wondering, as I'm hearing you talk about this, do you all think that there's a possibility for service-based or consulting services to be the beneficiary, let's say, of investment funding in conjunction with, as a complement to tech-based companies or SaaS companies that are getting funding? Or do you think that they will actually have enough to stand on on their own to kind of be valued in that way? Uh, Interesting question. And I think it's, again, it's not an or, it's an and. I think there will be service-based companies that distinguish themselves in terms of their area of expertise, to use it kind of a dated term. I think uh, clients are really looking to have the expertise so that they can translate the insight into action in with confidence in real time. And so I think organizations that have the reputation for supporting certain areas of you know, high value decisions are going to be one of a few. So you know, there's a lot of test and learn companies out uh, in the marketplace, but how many companies are really expert in, in a particular you know, high value you know, area of, of decision making in the market today? I think too, we have our tech companies that they're tech they don't understand the higher value decisions. And so they need that talent, that expertise to layer on top of, and I say on top of because I think of technology as very much an enabler, an enabler of process or an enabler of data collection and increasingly an enabler of analytics. But you still need to Sherry's point to get at what does this mean why is it important? What do I do next? And so I think it's a get back to it's an and, and we're at that stage in the market. 
I just wanted to add to that, Nikki, if I may, is that, you know, the myth that people perceive as SaaS companies are the only companies that get funding. I just want to put the investor hat on, right, from investment banking perspective. The SaaS companies or the, have reoccurring revenue streams, right? So if you can kind of bank that revenue stream and know that it's going to be there in the future, that reduces the risk for the investor. And that's really why SaaS is like such an attractive revenue stream or type of business to invest in. You know, there's all other kinds of metrics in terms of do you renew those revenue streams? How much attrition is there? You know, what service is layered with that SaaS revenue? Is it truly SaaS? But I think that's the thing that you know, if you put your investor hat on, that's why those companies are so attractive. It's the reoccurring revenue stream. Not to say that services companies don't have high quality revenue streams. We have tracking, we have recurrent contracts, but all those different types of revenue streams are valued or looked at a little bit differently with the eye of reducing uncertainty and risk from the investor's perspective. I think that's such a great point, Zima. And so when you're a service-based company, you need to think about, are there opportunities to syndicate, as an example, or create multi-client services that are on a subscription basis? So they may not be SaaS, but they're certainly subscriptions, so they're recurring revenue. Looking at your client base and really being very, you know, client retention over a long period of time reduces the risk. But to, to Seema's point, it's all about, you know, this, the predictability of the revenue, reducing the risk, uh, because, you know, the investor is about getting a return, you know, their focus is on getting a return. So they're betting on winners and everything about the company that can reassure them of that is going to be really quite, quite important. Another consideration might be to differentiate via proprietary or unique methodologies. So even though that still relies on human capital and you have to rely on the people that know those methodologies uh, staying with the business, at least for some period of time, that's another way to attract investors, even if you're not a technology-based service company. So that could be another strategy to look at. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And I think it pairs well with what Elaine was saying, that this is designed really to complement some of the existing tech and SaaS enabled solutions that are already receiving funding in the insight space. So I think those are some really great you know, points. Are there any other things that any of you can be aware of that maybe service-based consultancies can think about in terms of trying to highlight their strengths? to an investor. So obviously there's the decision-making part. So unique methodologies is great and really clear. If you're able to secure recurring revenue, that's great and also really clear. What about our ability to kind of be that assistance for decision-making? How can consultants and, and agencies really underscore the value of that to a potential investor? Sherry, do you have any thoughts? I think you actually hit the nail on the head. You use the word consultancy. That's a service business needs to, and actually Elaine used the word too, an advisory. Market research agencies need to position themselves as strategic partners, strategic thought partners and collaborators with the client. So they become that trusted advisor who can take insights, take data, put it all together, understand why and action it which is another point Elaine made, that actionability is the real key, you know, because because unless you're delivering actionable insights, there's no value and you're just delivering, you know, data. So there's no value in just delivering data anymore. There's plenty of places to get data. It's that insights piece and consultancy piece combined with the data, combined with the primary insights, that's really going to differentiate an agency as that trusted collaborator and thought partner. And, you know, I'll add something. Reputation is another important piece of the mix in terms of which companies will get invested in and which won't. And I think in our industry, we do a lot of work advising companies on their communications, and we don't do a particularly good job that for ourselves. So I think getting out there being visible, you know, this is a, per, you know, this forum is a perfect example that, you know, hosting webinars, uh, being on the speaker, you know, platforms, becoming known for, again, I'm going to reinforce and repeat 
high value decisions that, you know, are so critical to the business. So be out there, be visible, be known, because that will be part of the due diligence. And that's part of your ability to win business as well. And that translates to growth, which of course is the other important piece here that the investor is looking for historic growth, looking for a plan that points to future growth. And if you're one of many, you know, your growth can be challenged. If you're one of a few, then your growth is likely uh, more certain. So be bold and be assertive in the marketplace is, I think, an important message. Yeah. And I'll also add to that, like just even having a future plan, a future vision, the ability to document it and say, this is my trajectory and my team is behind it. And here's how I'm going to execute it demonstrates tremendous value and execution and visionary skills by a company, its founders and its executive team. I think that's hugely valuable because it basically, you know, again, we all make the best plans, but The investor wants to know you have a team that can execute well together, can think and share a vision together. And when the dark days come, you can actually pick yourself up and, you know, quote unquote, pivot or figure out plan B. Another thing I think is a growing trend in the industry, it's at least something I've long been a fan of, is partnership and collaboration. I think more and more clients in our industries are looking for agencies to find maybe joint solutions, even if it involves partnering with another agency who has a complementary skill set or differentiated services, putting those collaborations together, again, would reinforce your thought leadership to your point, Seema, and also differentiate you in the marketplace, get you out there to your point, Elaine, with the communications and you're being that leader in leading collaborations, leading partnerships, leading solutions that are far exceed any solution that a single agency can deliver on its own and becoming known for that, for that collaborative style and ability to facilitate those relationships, I think is a huge asset and will continue to be as the market continues to grow. Those are really great points. Yeah, go ahead, Elaine. Drawing on some history and some past experiences, the collaborations, to Sherry's point, uh, essential. I think there's a lot of options out there to bring different components of an overall solution together. And you need to prove that you're doing it. The investor doesn't want to know that it looks good on paper. You actually have to prove that you're doing it in the marketplace. The marketplace is supporting it in the form of revenue. And again, to Zima's great point of the executive team, that the combined teams are actually pulling together. So it is seamless. It may be two companies that are in partnership, but the experience of the client is a seamless solution. And so if you have that talent of being a, you know, a facilitator of those kinds of collaborations, that's a great strength that uh, you can bring to an opportunity into the future. Excellent. And so let's say that there's somebody listening who's hearing, you know, everything that you ladies have been saying about, okay, yes, my consultancy does function like that. Yes, we do have an executive team that really gels together and we are offering actionable recommendations on data. Okay, so now what? And I would love to hear from you ladies on what are some of the considerations that you should be making before you start to just go off and seek investment funding? Maybe Seema, do you want to kind of kick that one off? Yeah, sure. I think to make that decision is a big one. And you have to really ask, why are you doing this? Why? And if you have partners, you have to be aligned with your partners. So why do you want to do it? Why is now a good time to do it? And what ultimately are you trying to get out of this decision? It's really important because sometimes you like, and people just look at numbers and say, I want to raise X. And so I can take some money off the table and maybe, you know, potentially have an exit later. Well, why do you want to do that? Are you willing to do the trade-off? It's very different because all of a sudden you take capital and, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you haven't had a boss in a long time. You have a partner sitting with you. And again, depending on how much you sell uh, as part of your company, you still have a partner that you have to collaborate, discuss, share financials on a regular basis. And it's a different dynamic, right? You have another stakeholder at the table, whereas before it might've just been your clients, your employees, and kind of your industry partnerships. Now you have a a whole new stakeholder at the table and you need to factor that into the formula. I also think culturally, you really need to think about, you know, it's funny because we're talking about companies not getting funding. I think funding is not as hard as people think it is. 
it's getting the right company to fund you. And it's not just about the dollars, it's a cultural fit. Is there alignment in terms of the timing of an exit? Is there alignment in terms of really core values? Because again, if you have a partner in your business, you know, it's like a marriage, right? And so when you take on investors, it's just as deep of a relationship. And so you want to make sure there's alignment there in terms of what type of beyond the capital, what type of cultural fit there is. And then the third thing is, you know, when you are on your own an entrepreneur, you don't make your goals. Okay. It's all right. We'll fit, figure it out. But now there's a whole new level of accountability. And are you really ready to get out there and build the business, build the product solutions, execute on the vision and have that accountability for you, your team, and to the investors. Those are the broad buckets I would I think about. Yeah, Sherry, do you have any any considerations that you would add to that list? You know, if I'm considering seeking funding, what's your sort of make sure you keep in mind that this is something that may or may not happen if you seek funding? I think Seema summarized it really well. I actually can share from personal experience, since I am in the throes of acquiring funding for another venture I'm starting up right now. So this is, you know, real time. And I've partnered with investors that I've essentially grown up with in the industry. We've all been in the industry for, we won't say how many years, because it's a very long time. And they have equal reputations to mine. And we're very aligned in what the vision is for the venture and where we want to go and what we want it to do. So I think all the points are so valid that Seema made. Why did I seek investors instead of going it alone? I think I kind of do like, although to Seema's point, you are accountable to other people. You also have them as advisors and you have input and it's another perspective. And I think that can only enhance any new venture or even an existing venture, a pair of fresh eyes to take a look at what you're doing and set, help you set new directions. And I think that's exciting. I think that's an exciting part about seeking funding and growing the business. And in this case, it's a startup again from scratch, my fourth one in my career. I'm glad to be in it with somebody and not having to go on it, go at it on my own. So all those things and, and more. Great. And Elaine, anything from your perspective that you think CEOs and executives should keep in mind when seeking funding? Well, as, as Sherry said, I think, you know, Seema nailed it. It's, you know, you know, record that, you know, take notes because I mean, that's a gift that she just shared with everybody. You know, if I were to, to kind of summarize it as what I heard, it's, the money's there. You need to find the right partner. Sherry highlighted, you know, you need the right partner who's going to bring the right advice so that you have support to deliver on your plan. But you have to ask yourself the question, are you ready for what comes on the other side of taking money? And that is, you're being given the money to deliver on the plan. And so, you know, there's going to be potentially a layer of additional pressure, perhaps, that you might not have, you know, had to deal with before. So it's kind of go in with your eyes wide open. So if you really are ready for this, you know what you're getting into. And there's nothing wrong with maintaining a lifestyle business. That's also good. And there are different ways to help fund that. I will say, though, probably should always have a focus on exiting. You don't want to have built a business and then have no nothing for it at the end. So I think planning along the way of how you optimize your value, even if you don't take money, is important. And so that kind of disciplined planning and validating that you're putting your effort behind the right things is, is important if you never take any money. Yeah, that's a great point. And I would kind of love to flip this question on the other side, which is, okay, there's obviously some factors you need to consider, you need to be aware of before you seek funding. What are the reasons to seek funding? What are the good reasons to seek funding? Because I mean, I think that a lot of people aren't really sure, like what would be the benefit to me to have an investor or to maybe create a joint venture? Maybe Sherry, since you are in the throes, as you've already said, maybe it'd be great to start with you. What are the advantages to having an investor? Well, obviously in, a, in startup mode, it's working capital if you don't have your own working capital and you know something to rely on that you know you can stay afloat as you're in that startup mode. In an existing business, investments can fuel business growth or facilitate an exit for an owner that wants to get out. So in my last company, 
the owner had made the decision to exit and there were different scenarios that he was looking at. You know, one included a potential management buyout, which did not happen, but another included an acquisition, an outright acquisition. So I think there, obviously the benefit was he could take money out of the business to Elaine's point. He had spent, you know, 30 years building and optimizing growth of the business. He hired the right people. He made sure that in the years prior to acquisition, we were well positioned with revenues and profitability to be an attractive acquisition candidate. And then we entertained potential acquisition partners and went through the due diligence process and got acquired. So, you know, obviously getting a return on the, your blood, sweat and tears equity that you've put in over many, many years and being able to get out of the business and retire nicely, which is what he did is is a great benefit for some of the key employees, um, such as myself, we had small equity stakes and we were able to get some money out of it. So that was nice. And then I guess other reasons for an established business with an executive who is not ready to exit anytime soon, it would be to fuel the growth and, you know, have that working capital to do new things, try new things, maybe invest in technology. So I I think there's reasons for any kind of business at whatever stage you are of growth and whatever your long-term plan is in terms of including exit strategies. So I'm sure Elaine could elaborate on this a lot more. (laughs) I think it's all about ambition, you know, and, or aspiration, I guess, maybe a better word that you have the aspiration to build something bigger in the near term to respond to a market opportunity. And to do that, you need capital. And it's that ambition, that aspiration, that plan that goes with it, that you're going to use to excite, you know, those that can provide you with capital to partner with you. Not everybody has that ambition. <laughs> you know, I look at, you know, a couple of examples in the marketplace, you know, LRW now material, that tremendous ambition. And oh my God, you know, uh, it's just, you know, you have to take your hat off to Dave Sackman and what he's created. You know, that's an example of you need financial support in order to do that in the time frame that he's done it. Insights Consulting, same thing. You know, it's, you know, quite noteworthy to see what is being built. Uh, so I think you have to want it, it's in you to want to build something and you need the capital to go, uh, you know, to make it happen. It's not just, you know, taking money off the table is good too, but an investor is looking to get a return. That's, you know, the bottom line. It's not a gift, but, you know, they have particular metrics that they're being held accountable for by their investors. So it's kind of, it all flows <laughs> and they're betting on you. So are you ready to be bet on? So it's, and it's exciting. If you're a builder, it's an exciting opportunity. Yeah, Seema, did you have anything that you would want to add? I'm, I'm particularly interested in in how Insights Consultancies, for example, can use investment money to drive growth, as Sherry was saying. So what are some of the ways you've seen that happen? I think, you know, if you have a strong brand and you have an incredible, you have a good team and you have a vision, one of the ways you can use investment is for in a, inorganic growth, right? So Elaine mentioned Insights Consulting, they raise capital and you've seen that they've done several acquisitions that are in line with their brand and in line with their geographic expansion plans. So that's one way of kind of, you know, building a business is through inorganic growth through acquisition. You know, again, there are services-based companies that have tremendous value, great client portfolio, and they might see other needs that those clients might have. And they might build a proprietary asset using capital, uh, right? That can be coupled with their services that they provide. So that's, you could use capital, build a, it doesn't even have to be proprietary, but build an asset where you already have clients kind of, You've already identified they have a need for it, and there's a kind of a white space potentially that you can fill. And then the other thing is, you know, just traditional growth, you know, go to market teams, build out your go to market, your marketing teams. A lot of service based companies are focused on delivering the service, but if you raise uh, capital, You might say, I want to formally build out my go-to-market plans. And we all know that's a different kind of talent pool, a different approach, different metrics, but that's something that capital can be used for. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's definitely one of the questions that I get asked a lot because as I told you ladies when we were preparing for this session, 
we've actually been approached about possible acquisitions before. And I sit there and I think like all of the considerations that you mentioned come into my mind. I'm like, well, then I would have a boss, which I haven't had in a while. And I would probably have certain, you know, metrics and, and expectations of me and of the team that I would be expected to hit. And what would I actually do with, you know, having an investor? What would I do with those additional funds? And how would I see that, you know, benefiting and growing the team? So I think they're really important questions to ask yourself along with that, are you ready? It's they kind of go hand in hand from my perspective. So along those lines, I would love to know from you all, you said the money is there, there is money, it is possible for service-based consultancies to receive investment. So what happens next? Let's say that I'm ticking all the boxes. I'm going, yep, I've got a vision. Yep, I've got a great team. Yes, I've thought of the good parts. I've thought of the things that will be different about my life. And I've decided I definitely wanna go this route two-part question, and I'm happy if we do phase one and then address, but first is what happens next once I've decided? And second, linked to that is when, then who do I turn to? Where do I go? So I don't know, maybe Elaine, do you want to try to to kick us off with what happens next if I've decided I'm a CEO and I say I'm ready for investment? What should I do next? Well, you know, basically, you know, when you're ready for investment, what you're ready for is to basically exchange equity in your business for capital in order to invest in your business. So it's, you're taking your business to market in order to find that best investor. So you need to package up the business. So the first step is you need to, once you've decided this is what you need to do, you need to meet with, and there are, well, you have two of them on the, on the, on the webinar today. You meet with advisors who can help you uh, start to think through, okay, what's here today? What's your foundation? What does the business look like today? What do the financials look like? What does you, you know, profile your talent? You know, what's your, and in terms of going back to financials, what's your growth profile? What's your profit or EBITDA profile? So really getting to know the business and to understand your plan so that they can evaluate, okay, are you ready to go now? Or do you need to be buffed up in certain areas or need to tidy up in certain areas so that you're ready to go to market. So the advisor that you work with should be able to help you get your business ready and the story ready to go to market. And then once you're ready to go to market, they've put your story together, then they're going to go out on your behalf. But before we can go into the market on your behalf, we need to make sure you're ready to speak about your business. So if you're a comfortable, you know, sitting forward individual and ready to present your business and your plan, great. If you're not yet there, there's all kinds of professionals who can help you in terms of coach, in terms of presentation skills, so that you're ready to put your best foot forward in front of the potential investors, because they're going to want to see you because they're buying you and they're buying your management team and they're buying your thinking. So our job is to get the business packaged, you package so we can take it to market and get you the best valuation, if you will, which means giving uh, over the least amount of equity for the kind of capital that you think you're you think you need and of course in that whole process giving you an opportunity to meet with enough individuals as Seema said earlier to find the right partner for you there's a good culture fit style fit expertise fit for what you're trying to do so both sides are shopping if you will and it's the you know at the end of the day it's bringing that best partnership together because that is the word it's a partnership for a period of years and so that everybody's a winner at the end. Yeah, Seema, do you want to add to that? I guess I'll add like when you decide to go out for capital, you deserve the best options possible. And you work so hard to build your business. I talk to founders and they're like, gosh, three to six months feels like a really long time. But you've built your business over 15 years or 10 years. Take the time to go through a good process to showcase your business in the best light, to run a competitive process so you get your best options. It's worth it because, you know, I've talked to people and say, well, somebody has offered to do X. Nikki, to what you just talked about. Well, how do you know that's the best option? How do you know there's not other people that have better solutions for you or better options for you? And it's a little bit of a, sometimes it's confusing because 
people have put blood, sweat, and tears into their business. And it feels like once they, I think making that decision is such a big one. They want it to be done quickly. It's not quick. It's a process. And you as a founder, as an executive team are worth it. And I strongly encourage making sure you go through the process, work with advisors, bankers, whomever you choose to do to really put your story together in the best favorable light that you can. And then let the bankers go out and do your process. I mean, let them reach out to as many parties as possible so you can see what options you can evaluate. That's my, in including what I said, I would just enunciate that point a little sharper. Fantastic. And how about you, Sherry? In my former company, we actually worked with a management consultant. The executive team worked with the management consultant for two years. Maybe it was three. So start preparing us for the sale of the company. And we, in that time, we had to completely relook at our mission, our vision, our, how we operated, um, how we were going to grow revenue, how we were going to grow profitability and, we did some amazing things, you know, right prior to acquisition, our profitability just went through the roof because we were so aligned and that management consultant helped us get aligned. Also, a key part was our CFO who was brought in specifically to do the packaging you're talking about, package us up, show us in the best financial light, shop us around to as many potential acquirers as possible, and then ultimately negotiating the best deal for us for the buyout. Now, of course, this was a sale, not just a growth capital investment, but um, I think it's the same process, whichever you're doing. You have to make the investment of time and possibly money. I mean, this consultant guy was not cheap, but we met with him, I think, four times a year as a board and a management team. And we were working on that constantly, always with the goal that we were going to sell the company. And this is what we had to do in order to get ready. So that's the real life case study. Yeah. And I think I'll use this to tie in with one of the questions that we've already gotten from the audience. And going back to what you said as well, Seema, about how you deserve the best options. And, you know, that, and Elaine also said, are you forward sitting and confident enough to present yourself to potential investors? One of the questions um, from Sheila in the audience was if you can address the stat that less than 5% of VC money has gone to female founders in the last five years. There is a lot of hype around investing in women founders, but the data doesn't support that fact. And I know that when we were preparing for this conversation, we were talking a lot about how female founders don't often exude the confidence that investors are expecting to see. So I would love maybe, Sherry, if you can kick off actually and telling us about what do you need as a female founder and why do you think there's so few funding dollars going to female founders right now? I think it's going back to what someone was saying before, I don't know if that was you, Nikki, that often women are more introverted and don't have that self-confidence to ask for money. They're afraid to ask for money and you can't be afraid. You have to have the confidence in yourself that, you know, you have a sound business or a sound business idea. You have to have the idea that you will be supported in this idea and that people will be interested in funding your idea. And you have to go out and do that. I think as Elaine mentioned, um, engage and Ansema, engaging an advisor to help you package your business and present yourself in the best light. I think that's really important. If you don't feel confident in yourself, you know, employ a coach, employ an advisor that can get you ready and to present you in the best light, almost like a publicist. So I think that's going to be really important. And then, you know, just do it. I mean, we deserve to see this point as much as anyone else, as much as any man to get the money. So go get it, ladies. That's what I can say. <laughs> I love it. Seema, what about you? <laughs> yeah, listen, I mean, it, it's the reality of where we live, where our world is right now. I mean, it's exactly what Sherry said and Elena said, you know, you definitely have to exude confidence. You know, you have to feel Again, when you think about buying something or a product or service, you buy from people who generally you're confident in and you trust them and you know that behind a product or service, there's good talent behind them. And I think this is very similar. And even though women tend to be more introverted, I don't think necessarily you have to mimic you know, anybody's style. You can still be confident in an introverted way, right? You can pause and you can communicate in your own style, but still exude confidence and still ask 
for the capital. So again, I don't want people to feel like, oh my gosh, there's no way I can be like that person. I don't think you fundamentally have to change your complete style. It's just, you know, maybe even doing role play, trying to figure out how do you exude confidence in within your own skin, within your own style. And again, going back to what we talked about a process, that cultural fit in terms of where you're going to raise capital is important. And so the running a process will help you find the right fit based on, you know, your style and what you're looking for. And, you know, I think Zima makes such a great point. I mean, don't try and be anybody other than yourself. You have to be authentic. I mean, that at the end of the day is essential. And I think too, I do believe that women bring a different set of strengths to the table. You know, we're very much into the specifics and the detail and, you know, we're not going to say what we can't deliver. And so there's, you know, an authenticness, not to say that men aren't at all, but there are a lot of strengths that we bring to the table. So it's playing up those strengths and that makes us, you know, a very good bet. So it's going in with that self-assuredness, that belief that, you know, I'm worth betting on. And I think a lot of us have it. It just, you know, may need a little bit of coaching around the edges to, you know, get the right language into the marketplace. And Sherry said something really important. She said publicist. I think it's not insignificant to get known. So be getting yourself out there in maybe less, in, in more familiar ways, like, you know, being quoted in some of the industry journals, doing these kinds of events and getting it publicized. I mean, LinkedIn is a great mechanism. There are others. So getting known, I think, also helps to build your confidence. So it's, you know, there's a lot of different elements to be brought together. And, uh, you know, the publicist idea is not only getting you known, but it's getting your company known. So those are some things to think about as well. You know, I have to believe too, that any woman who had the wherewithal to start up a business and make it successful to the point where you're ready to get funding, I have to believe that she is confident enough to ask for that funding, you know, in whatever way is her own style. It's just no different from closing the sale. You can't get business if you don't ask for the business and close the sale for your clients. So it's not much different. An investor is just another client. It's a bigger sale. But I think if maybe with that mindset, that's sort of looking at it in a different way and maybe feels better to do the ask, close that sale. And I do just want to take this moment to plug slightly that the second installment of this series is specifically going to be talking about female and minority owned businesses and the different obstacles that they face when seeking funding and how they can overcome that. So I encourage Sheila and anyone else that's interested in trying to blast this statistic about only 5% of VC funding goes to female founders out the window to check out the second one, because we also have um, some other really great speakers already lined up for that um, who have been there and done that. And they're going to be able to tell us a little bit more about how we can shake things up. We do have another question from the audience, and I would love to give some time to that. And so the question is, what are the most impactful areas of a service business to put fundraising capital towards? For example, what is the best way to use the capital towards business growth or sustainability? So I know we talked a little bit about this on a general level, but if anyone has any kind of more specific things that they've seen result in success, specifically in the insights industry, I think that would be really helpful. So I won't pick on anyone to start. Just jump in if you've already got it. Because Zima actually said it earlier. One of the things, that, tremendous things that Zima has said in this last 45 minutes is go to market. And one of the observations I've made of our industry is that oftentimes we have tremendous solutions that have been developed and the, you know, led by the, the founder and their team. And what's absent is a strong go-to-market, a strong selling machine to get that great solution out to more clients within your current geography and geographically getting into more budgets. So I think, you know, that is an area of opportunity for our marketplace to really think of both the innovation solution and then the marketing and the sales. And it's the two together that really drive the business forward. So it's, it's a really good point in terms of where capital can go. I agree. And based on what you said, Elaine, about investors looking for a return on investment, I think it's got to be business growth. I mean, that's the only way you're going to return substantially on investment. A nice example that I heard about recently is a company called Brado, who was traditionally known for only doing qualitative research. And 
they actually got PE funding by, you know, a completely different company and added quantitative services to grow the business. And it was so successful that the PE firm actually took the name Brado. So now the whole company is called Brado, even though that was the original just qualitative market research firm. So going back to reputation, leveraging brand equity in your business, all of that, I thought that was a nice case study to illustrate what we're talking about. Yeah, that's a great example. And it makes me want to throw a little curveball question to you all that hasn't come from the audience and wasn't in the list of questions that I sent you. But building off of this idea, Sherry, that you just mentioned about adding complementary services, for example, to what you might already be offering as a way to grow the clients that you appeal to. And as everyone was already mentioning at the beginning of this, that tech and SaaS-based companies and consultancies and advisories don't have to be, it's not an or, it can be an and solution. I would love to know your thoughts on my perspective, I see a lot of research, you know, hashtag ResTech, right? So tech companies in the research industry are everywhere. And a lot of times they are built without research expertise in mind. Not all of them. I definitely know that there are some, I think there's some watching right now who are researchers who went off and developed their own tech tools or a SaaS solution, which is fantastic. But there are plenty of research tech solutions out there that were built not for research purposes and then, you know, retrofitted to our needs. And I I'm often wondering, would it be of value to them to add a consultancy or to add, because so many of them say, oh, well, we don't do the consultancy part. We don't do the research design. We won't do questionnaire design. We won't do this or that. It's not part of our remit. It's not as profitable. The investors don't like it. So I would love to hear any thoughts that you might have on that sort of the idea of, you know, building complementary sets and and the fact that maybe we shouldn't be thinking of these as separate ideas anymore, but as a way to really make the data more actionable. That's really a fantastic point. And another great example is med tech, right? So technology wearables, patient monitoring devices, all the technology that's getting combined for medical and, you know, transforming that industry. So I completely agree. The more things that you can automate in terms of generating data, the better that you can use that data to derive actionable insights. So shameless plug for future health strategies, the intersection of data insights and technology, right? That's what we're doing. We need to bring those three things together to transform the future, in my case of healthcare, but that can apply to all industry verticals. That marrying of the data, the insights and the technology is only going to go towards creating enhanced customer experiences, which is what it's all about these days, especially in this era of Zoom and the pandemic and everything virtual. Everyone's had to pivot. That's such an overused word, but okay, I'll use it. Everyone's had to pivot to this technology environment, and now we're all living in it. And I think it's going to continue. This is our new normal. So the more that you can incorporate technology into the research that you're doing, and enhance your offerings, I think the better. And that's only going to enhance valuation and hence investment in your company. I was going to say, yeah, I think there is a huge opportunity for partnership with some of these tech-enabled companies that might have not been, you know, born out of the traditional research and quantitative methods that, you know, our industry is used to. My only caution to that is as you develop those partnerships, you know, be careful about, revenue concentration, right? So if you're only going to focus on that, then you have a huge reliance on one company. And, you know, if they switch or change their minds, you have to really think about that carefully. And how do you continue to grow your business and your core competencies? So I think it's a great idea. It's just a matter of how does a partnership like that fit into your overall portfolio business? Yeah. And one thing I'll say, I think that's a really important point. Now there are you know, part of the, you know, your growth plan could be to go and acquire a company like that. And so that would be the basis for your, your capital raise. And, but what I'll add, uh, not, but, and what I'll add to that is that I think, think with the client in mind. So as I'm paying attention to the marketplace, increasingly clients are looking for do it yourself. Certain decisions don't need a lot of service and support and don't need a lot of data integration. They're just very fundamental, you know, information needs. And it could be for any of the, you know, functional areas within an organization. Then there are those that require more service. So I think 
think with the client in mind, what are the gaps in the marketplace that you can see right now? And then do some research with your client base and, and, and not only your client base, but client community. And clients are usually really, really good at giving you a really straightforward answer. This is solving a problem. This isn't solving a problem. And so let's take our own skills back to our own client base and do some testing and learning and figure out what the solutions are, because that'll be a good basis to inform your growth plan. But all that said, I think it really is an and marketplace. It can be the tech that's going to allow a decision maker to get a fast answer. And there is the tech plus service that's essential for other types of decisions or other types of work that they don't have the capacity for or the experience in. So I think it's a great time to be thinking of solutions, but, you know, go be very client centric. Where are their issues? You know, it's a need gap analysis. Where's the gap in the market and what's the need that can solve for it? Yeah. The one thing I'll add also is that I don't think we touched upon this in the beginning, but it's a great time for our industry. I think these tech-enabled solutions are expanding our ecosystem. And to what Elaine and Cherry said, like there's opportunities to serve the client better. And where do we find those opportunities? But overall, I'm really optimistic about the, our industry because data is becoming such a central point of decision-making and it, it informs so much more in organizations as it relates to key business decisions. Whereas before it was almost... I don't want to say held hostage, but it was kind of concentrated in one area within a client. It's now expanded into other functions. And hence, these platforms are really opening that up for us. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.